Ever since the creation of money, there are people who are always looking for ways to make it quickly and easily. The promise of quick profits are often very tempting to anyone who dreams of a better life. Imagine the chance to double your money in as little as three months. That is just what one man pledged in the early 20th century and got thousands of people to give him their hard-earned cash. Today we have the tale of Charles Ponzi on the 157th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee and Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Well, I hope everybody's doing great today. I'm doing fantastic. In fact, I'm getting ready to take a vacation. But before I get started, I've got a story to tell. So a quick follow-up on the poker game I was telling you about last week, the charity poker game I was at. There were about 37 players, and I finished third, so I guess that's not bad. Not first, but third. What the heck? Anyway, today's story is longer than usual, so I'm going to keep my beginning bit here short. Besides the long story, I've still got a lot of packing to do as I leave for a two-plus week vacation out west, so I'm looking forward to that. So let's get into it. Here's the story of a man named Charles Ponzi. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. At the federal prison in North Carolina, where Bernard Madoff is serving a 150-year sentence, fellow inmates want him to teach an investment class. But he said the prison won't allow it. In a recent interview with the Wall Street Journal, Madoff shared new insight about the massive Ponzi scheme he masterminded. His victims, he said, have themselves to blame. My investors were sophisticated people, smart enough to know what was going on and how money was made, but they still invested with me without any explanations. What is a Ponzi scheme? Well, simply, it's when a con man promises investors big returns on their money, and he uses other newer investors to pay the funds he promised to the original ones. The scam works as long as investors don't demand full payment and they are willing to believe that they actually own something. And of course, it's essential that new investors are always being brought in. It's basically a Rob Peter to pay Paul situation. And there's a point where it must collapse and most of the investors will lose everything. It's an easy scam because people are always looking for a way to make money. Bernard Madoff, known as Bernie, is probably the most famous person to be convicted for running a Ponzi scam in recent history. On the 29th of June, 2009, Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison, the maximum allowed. But did you ever wonder where the name Ponzi came from? There was a man who, while not the first to commit such a scheme, was so successful at it, we now call any similar crime by his name. The strange thing is, he didn't originally plan on cheating people. 
He started out with an honest, legal business idea. It's just that his idea didn't work out and it became, well, let's get into it. His name was Charles Ponzi and he was born in 1882 in Lugo, Italy and grew up in Parma as Carlo Ponzi. Carlo's father was a postman and his mother came from an aristocratic Italian family. The money his mother was used to wasn't there anymore, so they lived more middle class than upper class, but she still insisted on using the honorific title of Donna. Carlo's mother, who loved and pampered him, dreamed that one day he could bring the family back into the wealth they once enjoyed. The details of his early life are sketchy at best. It seemed that he was a petty thief in Italy and not a very good one since he was always caught. When he attended college, he hung around the wealthy students and tried to keep up with their lifestyle and spending habits. He would go to fashionable nightclubs and stay up late drinking and gambling. Unfortunately, due to this, he couldn't keep up with his studies and eventually, after three years, dropped out. No one knows the exact reason why he headed to America. Some people think that his family got sick and tired of having to bail him out of jail and pay his gambling debts, so they convinced him to head to America to make his fortune as many young Italian men had. With Carlo's gift of gab, infectious confidence, tremendous energy, and huge friendly smile, he surely would make his family proud. On the 15th of November, 1903, he boarded the SSS Vancouver and headed to America's East Coast with his life savings in his pocket. Some say around 200 American dollars. He fancied himself a good card player and figured he would use his skills while aboard the ship to increase his wealth. It didn't work out that way. It seems he wasn't the card player he thought he was, so when he arrived in Boston, he didn't have much. As he later told the New York Times, I landed in this country with $2.50 in cash and $1 million in hopes, and those hopes never left me. He found himself in Boston and quickly learned to speak, read, and write English. For the next few years, he bounced around the East Coast with one failure after another, taking all sorts of jobs to make ends meet. At one point, he took a job as a dishwasher, moved up to waiter, but was eventually fired for shortchanging the customers. In 1907, he moved to Montreal, Canada, never losing faith that one day he would be rich and powerful. Leo Zarossi, who owned his own bank, hired Ponzi as a teller. As Ponzi looked over the bank's books, he quickly realized that something wasn't right. It seemed that Zarazi was doing his own, what someday would be called, a Ponzi scheme, promising his customers more interest than he could possibly afford to pay. It is thought that this is where Charles began to get his ideas for his later life. Life at the bank came to an end when one day, while looking through a drawer, Ponzi came across a blank check. Now he had wanted to go back to America and was hoping to go back in style, so he wrote himself a check from one of the bank's accounts for $423.58, forging the signature. It didn't take long for this to be discovered. He was arrested and was sentenced to three years in a Canadian prison. To avoid embarrassment, he wrote to his mother and lied, telling her that he had taken a special job as an assistant to the prison warden. He was released for good behavior after 20 months. After prison, in July of 2010, Ponzi was headed back to the United States 
when he ran into a friend he knew. His friend offered him a deal for a substantial amount of money if he could smuggle five Italian immigrants over the border into the United States. He was caught once again and this time spent two years in an Atlanta, Georgia prison. Once released, he headed back to Boston. Now, the thing about Charles Ponzi is he wasn't just a con man. One of the most famous stories comes from a time when Charles was working for a mining camp. One night, while he was working as a male nurse, the doctor came in and said that another nurse, Pearl Gossett, had suffered major burns when a gasoline stove she was using exploded in flames. This was in the days before things like antibiotics, and such injuries could be fatal. A skin graft was needed to save her life, and the doctor couldn't find anybody willing to help. Charles Ponzi barely knew this woman, but didn't hesitate. Fifty square inches of skin were painfully taken from his back and legs to help this woman. It took Charles three months to recover, but saved Pearl Gazette's life. At some point after that, he met stenographer Rosemarie Gouchot, whose father owned a fruit and vegetable business. The two fell in love and were married in 1918. Rose might have been at least partly responsible for the trouble Ponzi got into in later days. Not that Rose demanded anything from Charlie. She just loved him, and for her it was just enough that he came home at night to spend time with her. The problem is, Charles' love for her was so strong that he thought she should live the good life. He wanted to shower her with riches. A big house, jewels, cars, and the rest. It might have been his love for Rose and his quest to make his mother proud that pushed him towards all the trouble that would follow him in later life. It begins with what might be considered the first worldwide currency. It was called International Exchange Coupons or Postal Reply Coupons. You see, in the early 20th century, the world was changing. It was the beginning of people traveling all over, and a lot of these were people who were immigrating to the United States. Young people from all over the world came to make their fortune in the place where they believed the streets were paved with gold. Of course, they would write letters to their relatives back home with constant updates of how they were doing. Those relatives always wanted to write back. The problem is, they couldn't afford the price of postage to send letters to the United States. And it was impossible for those in the United States to buy the postage they needed to send the letters. Postal reply coupons were the answer. You could buy these coupons at a United States post office, include them with your letter, and those receiving the letters could exchange those coupons for the postage they needed to send their letters. But the thing is, the value of these coupons varied with the strength of the currency from the country that was using them. This was right after World War I, and the U.S. dollar was very strong, but many European countries who were dealing with depression and inflation, the currency was weak. Charles Ponzi saw an opportunity. He could purchase one of these coupons in Italy, bring it to the United States, and cash it in. In doing this, he could make up to 400% profit. It was legal and could work. Ponzi had a friend or relative purchase one of these international exchange coupons in Italy, sent it to him, and when he cashed it in, it succeeded just as he thought. But there was one problem with this plan. He didn't have the capital he needed to make it work in a meaningful way. 
His first attempt to get money was to get a loan from the Hanover Trust Company Bank. Not only was he told no, but he was shown the door and told to leave. In 1920, Ponzi set up the Securities Exchange Company in downtown Boston and began offering people an opportunity to invest. He was a small man in size, but his extreme confidence, enthusiasm, and huge ear-to-ear grin had a huge effect on those around him. His offer was simple. He said he could double people's money in three months, or if they like, he would give them 50% profit in 45 days. Ponzi was smart. He never pressured people into investing. He would simply tell them how it worked, how much money they would make, and would tell them, the deal's there if you want it. Take it or leave it. He knew most people, on one hand, had a skeptical side, but also, on the other side, feared the embarrassment they would suffer if they passed up on a golden opportunity. Sure, it could be a scam, but what if it's not? What if everybody else gets rich but me? Boy, would I feel stupid. The first month, he was able to get 18 people to invest, mostly Italian immigrants, with a total of $1,800. He gave each investor an official note promising their returns. And when the time came, he paid the interest just as promised. It didn't matter if Charles got the money through postal reply coupons or not. As long as he had the interest he promised, investors were so impressed that they immediately gave him the money back to reinvest. This would be a theme that would play out over and over again during the Postal Reply Coupon deal. If one could double their money in 90 days, think how much they could make if they kept it going, if they let it ride. When word got out, more and more people came to Ponzi with money in hand. He soon opened a bigger office and agents were hired on a commission basis to find more investors. The money just poured in. Between February and March 1920, the total amount invested had risen from 5000 to 25000 In 1920, he made $420,000, which is equal to about $5 million in today's money. By June 1920, people had invested almost $2.5 million in his company. Ponzi could not print the promissory notes fast enough. One thing to remember is Ponzi most likely had the idea to do exactly what he said he was going to do, invest in postal coupons in Italy and sell them in the U.S. But the thing was, it just wasn't practical. In fact, it was impossible. To purchase these coupons for the first handful of investors alone, it would have taken them 53,000 postal reply coupons. By the time he had 20,000 investors, he would have had to fill up tanker ships with these coupons. And even if that was possible, there were not enough coupons to cover it and the cost of hiring people to bring these coupons to America would have been tremendous. Charles was getting rich, but for each dollar he took in, he was actually getting more and more into debt. Yet through all of this, Charles Ponzi was always looking for a way to make it right, to find some sort of investment to pay people the money that they had coming. He never lost confidence that somehow, some way, something would come along to make it right. What he did next was a bit interesting. He took large amounts of money and began depositing it in the Hanover Trust Bank of Boston, which was a small bank on Hanover Street. His plan was simple. 
invest enough money in the bank, then he could take over the bank by threatening to pull his money out. It worked, and eventually he had a controlling interest in the bank. All this happened in six months, where he went from penniless to having millions. And to the people of the Italian community in Boston, he was like a god. He couldn't walk around the streets without being mobbed by adoring crowds. It is tempting to look at Ponzi as a man whose dreams pushed him into a situation that was way over his head, got him into something he just couldn't get out of. But at the same time, it must be remembered that he was doing awful things to people. There were many heartbreaking stories like a woman who mortgaged her home to invest with Ponzi, and many more who took their life savings, everything they had, and gave it to him, all with dreams of making it rich. Many gave Ponzi every penny they had and, in the end, lost it all, many ending up in the poorhouse. Meanwhile, Ponzi bought a huge house outside of Boston for him, Rose, and his mother. It had central air and air conditioning, something that was almost unheard of at the time. It was furnished with expensive items and had a heated swimming pool in back. He even bought a company where he had once worked just so he could fire the man who had once fired him. But as the days went on, no matter how rich he seemed, Charles Ponzi was actually getting more and more into debt. It was a house of cards that eventually had to collapse. It all began with a man named Joseph Daniels. You see, when Ponzi first set up the Securities Exchange Company, Charles Daniels, who was a Boston furniture dealer, gave him all the furnishings for his office free of charge. Now Daniels was suing him, saying that he should be entitled to some of this money that Ponzi was making. The lawsuit failed, but it was the first time people started questioning just what he was doing. But Charles knew how to handle this type of situation. There were a few times that a run of people in a panic would arrive at his office demanding their money. Charles would go out with a smile on his face and happily pay people off, saying, I can afford to do this. You want your money? Sure, I've got it. Take it and be happy. It took only a few people to be paid off before the rest would start to feel relieved and go away without their money. It proved to them that Charles was a wealthy, honest guy. Richard Gozer, who was the acting publisher of the Boston Post while his father was away, began taking an interest in Ponzi's company. He was a young man trying to make a name for himself and realized that this was a bit too good to be true. He began to send investigators to the Securities Exchange Company and to write articles questioning the activities that were going on there. About the same time, the state of Massachusetts began to take an interest and sent investigators to find out what he was doing. He told the officials that during their investigation, he wouldn't take in any more money, but would continue to pay the investors. This, for the meantime, seemed to satisfy them. The truth is, Ponzi's record-keeping was so poor, the officials wouldn't be able to make heads or tails of it anyway. Then he came up with an idea that he thought might pull him out of this bad situation. He thought that if he could get banks to lend him $20 million, he could buy a fleet of steamships. Once he started this new steamship company, he would offer his investors a chance to trade their investments for stock in the new company. This idea failed because banks refused to loan him the money. Newspaper articles began asking the question that, if Ponzi had such a great plan for making money, 
why didn't he invest his own capital? He was putting his own money into banks that paid less than 4% interest rather than his business that paid a lot more. And then when Clarence Barron, a financial journalist who headed Dow Jones & Company, figured out that Ponzi would need 160 million postal reply coupons to do what he said he was doing, and that there were only 27,000 that actually were in circulation, and the United States Post Office stated that the postal reply coupons were not being bought in large quantities at home or abroad, that something had to be wrong. And if he was really doing what he was claiming to do, he would effectively be profiting at the expense of the government. And Barron argued that even if Ponzi's operation was legitimate, it was immoral to take advantage of the government in this manner. In response, Ponzi replied, I have used this postal coupon idea as a blind. I didn't want the Wall Street boys getting a hint at what my scheme is. As long as my depositors get their investments with profit, I don't have to account to anybody. Yet to many, Ponzi's explanation wasn't good enough, and it started another run at the Securities Exchange Company. In three days, Ponzi paid out $2 million to a crazy crowd outside his office, the whole time passing out coffee and donuts, cheerfully telling them they had nothing to worry about. But this was the beginning of the end. More newspaper articles, investigations, and such went on for some time. On August 12, 1920, Ponzi surrendered to federal authorities who showed up at his office. In the end, his scam brought down five other banks in addition to the Hanover Trust. His investors were practically wiped out, receiving at most 30 cents on the dollar. 17,000 investors sank more than $10 million into his company. There were so many heartbreaking stories of people that lost everything they had. In two federal indictments, Ponzi was charged with 86 counts of mail fraud and faced a lifetime in prison. At the urging of his wife, Ponzi pleaded guilty on November 1, 1920 to a single count before Judge Clarence Hale. He was sentenced to five years in federal prison. His wife Rose fainted when she heard the sentence. After serving three and a half years in federal prison, he was released only to face a Massachusetts state trial in which he was sentenced to a seven to nine year prison term. While out in bail, he traveled to Florida to raise money for his legal battle. Why there he started the Sharpoon Land Syndicate. It was another scam in which he was selling tracts of land, most of which were underwater. He was caught and sentenced to a year in prison. He ran to Texas and tried to escape on a ship, but was caught and sent back to Massachusetts. Finally, in 1934, he was released from prison for the last time. An angry mob greeted him as he left, still upset about the money they had lost. He was deported back to Italy. Rose stayed behind, and the two would get a divorce in 1937. One of the last things he said to reporters was, I went looking for trouble, and I found it. But he didn't stop. He was always looking to make a fortune. At one point, he was looking for people to invest in his autobiography. It failed. He eventually took a real job with an agency for the Italian state airlines in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, 
When the airline was shut down due to World War II, he continued to live in Rio and spent time working on his autobiography. He died in the charity ward of the Rio de Janeiro Hospital on January 18, 1949 at the age of 66. At his bedside was the manuscript for his life story, which he called The Rise and Fall of Mr. Ponzi. Before he died, he gave one last interview to an American reporter, telling him, even if they never got anything for it, it was cheap at that price. Without malice afterthought, I had given him the best show that was ever staged in their territory since the landing of the Pilgrims. It was easily worth 15 million bucks to watch me put that thing over. Here in 1919 is Charles Ponzi, self-styled financial wizard, loafing at his Boston mansion with his lovely wife and proud and adoring mother. Ponzi's proved his boast he can make 50% profit on investments in 90 days, and wise men follow him. To show he doesn't do it with mirrors, Ponzi opens shop on Boston stage with Billy B. Van as office boy. And among his celebrated clients is none other than gentleman Jim Corbett. Ponzi puts over his usual big deal. But the audience that watches Spellbound here is later dumbfounded when government proves Ponzi a swindler. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go. There might be another side to Ponzi that I didn't talk about. I have read that he was a bit of a philanthropist, giving, giving $100,000 to a Boston orphanage. Of course, was it his money to give away? Throughout this whole tale, I never totally got a grasp on just who this man was. An evil con man who didn't care about anybody else, or a delusional dreamer who got way in over his head. Perhaps it was a little bit of both. So, like I said, I'm going on vacation for a couple weeks, so I won't be doing my next show, but I think I've negotiated for a very talented couple to take my place in two weeks. Fingers crossed that it will work out. But regardless, I'll be back in a month with another exciting Coffee with Jeff tale. Well, I've got to go. I've got a lot of things to do. So how about we get to the ending credits? Remember, without your kind and generous support, this and the other Psycon podcasts would not exist. If you're not a supporter, please, I beg you, think about becoming one. Just go to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top of the page. And of course, a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the network. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? Just go to Psycon.fm. Another thing you could do is email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can email me for any reason. You can just say hi. That's fine. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I would love for you to join. Your story ideas are always welcome. I can always use them. And you can tell me about them at any of these places. If you want to support the show but you can't afford it right now, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. You'd be surprised how much those help. And remember, links to the sources I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. 
I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You guys have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in about a month to do another show, but maybe there'll be one in two weeks. Who knows? Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, 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 coffee